Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film The Last of Sheila with my wonderful guest, Nick Lang. Oh, hello. Okay. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. It's great to see you. This is my guest, Nick Lang. Nick Lang, thanks for coming on the show. Today, we're talking about The Last of Sheila from 1973. Nick, what did you think? I thought it was great. I loved it. I thought it was a very intriguing mystery, um, a nice whodunit with some really fun characters. And um, we're okay just spoiling these movies for people, right? Yeah, this is a spoiler alert. Just go watch the movie first if you don't want anything spoiled because we're going to spoil everything right now. It's fantastic. I'm so glad you liked it. I really loved the characters. They were great. Well, so I guess I should also start by saying Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins wrote this movie. They wrote it together because they were friends and they used to set up these games where they would do this in real life. They thought it would be so much fun to make a movie, a mystery movie about like this hobby that they had in real life. Um, and once Stephen Sondheim hosted a game like this, where like someone in the crowd was the killer. Wow. What a couple of weirdos, right? And what they said was they came up with the traits before they came up with the characters. Like they came up with all of the things that were wrong with the people first and then built the characters around them. Roger Ebert gave this film one of the only good reviews it got. And he said what he loved about it was that it was very beautifully character based and that the dialogue was so witty. Yes. And I agree. He said the characters are just as interesting as the plot. I absolutely agree. And um, they kill off the, the right characters you know, there were some parts where I was worried that my favorite character was going to die. Um, <laughs> my favorite character, what's her name? Christine. She was my favorite character too. She's, She's the my best. favorite character. Did you know that she was based on Anthony Perkins' real agent? That's amazing. <laughs> yep. Her name, I wrote it down somewhere. It was like Sue Mangle or something like that. Um, but she was a real person and they actually asked her to be in the movie. And she said, no, I'm not going to be in the movie, but my client, Diane Cannon, can be in the movie. Perfect. That's the perfect thing. I loved it in just the very first conversation with her on the phone when she ends it going, kiss, kiss, then hangs up. My favorite sentence from that that I wrote down when she was like, I lost 50 pounds. I'm a hollow reed. The delivery of that. It was great. What else has Anthony Perkins written? Because Stephen Sondheim, we know that he writes, but Anthony Perkins... I actually don't know. They, I know how they became friends because I remember watching it and hating it. Um, they became, I think this is how they became friends. I mean, did you ever watch Evening Primrose? No. Did you ever see that? Oh my God. My mom um, bought me the DVD for like my birthday or something. I think I was in college and we sat down and we watched it together and we thought it was going to be this really cool Sondheim special. And, and it is all the Sondheim people at home will be like, I hate you. It's wonderful. But it's like a Twilight Zone story. It's a scary story. And you know, I hate scary. Stories. I was honestly surprised when I saw this movie. I was going, this movie's a little scary for Sarah. I've come so far, right? I was proud of you. I appreciated that. What makes something like Evening Primrose scary, the whole premise of that movie, Evening Primrose is about a man who decides from now on he wants to live in a mall. 
and that's Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim like helped write this and it's a musical and it was a TV special and there are some sort of famous songs that have come out of it. Like I remember Sky, I hear all the time and I'm like, you don't even know why they're singing it. It's terrifying. Uh, he thinks he's all alone in the mall. It's a lie. There's all these like scary people that also live in the mall. And once you live in the mall, you can never leave. And once a little girl got left behind by accident and they wouldn't let her go back outside because their rule is like, no one can know about our existence. <laughs> he falls in love with the girl who's now a grown up, and they decide that they do want to leave. But the other people like, I don't know if it's that they supernaturally, they somehow become mannequins. And it terrified the shit out of me. That, But that's why they're friends, this like dark, sinister tale. You can tell. You can tell the two of them have like sick conversations. Well, and even there were like two bits of like macabre in this, that where, you know, when she's dead and she's like that white flash of her face and she looks all crazy. And then with the puppets. It was fun because you go like Stephen Sondheim and, um, and Anthony Perkins, yes, both famous for separate creepy things. Anthony Perkins, famously Norman Bates from Psycho and Stephen Sondheim. I would say all of his musicals are in some way creepy, even the happy comedies. But they're also like really ahead of their time and progressive. And they both are two people that make really unusual career choices in general. Like Anthony Perkins was a leading man and like gave it all up to play Norman Bates because he thought it was so cool, right? And then Stephen Sondheim is always one step ahead and sometimes he's lauded for it and sometimes people really dislike it. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. I will say, okay, I'll get into the what this movie's about. Okay, so <laughs> the last of Sheila. How would we describe this? It's a classic mystery whodunit. Oh, except I should say, so basically the mystery whodunit as we know it was reinvigorated, like reinvented in the 70s um, because of Murder on the Orient Express, which came out a year after this movie. And so then all of a sudden, everyone's making all these Agatha Christie movies with like these large casts of old movie stars. This came before all that. This was like a precursor to that. And so when it came out, no one really knew what to make of it because it wasn't in style yet. And then a year later, all of this kind of stuff was in style. Um, what Agatha Christie used to do in her novels was she would write about current things. So we're reading them now thinking nothing is current. These characters aren't current. But back then, they were all stereotypes of current characters you would find. So that's what's interesting about this is it, it was current like Hollywood characters of the 70s that were very modern. I loved that premise that it's all of these Hollywood figures stuck together doing the whodunit the agent the screenwriter the actress all that kind of stuff it, the producers running the whole show yeah they're all terrible people you really like you can enjoy them but they're all monsters wait okay so I'll finish saying what it's about because there are people like my mother who will just listen to this and who will not watch the movie so I'll at least tell those people what it's about so yeah whodunit mystery there's a wealthy man who's a producer who is married to this woman named Sheila. And at the very opening of the film, we see Sheila get killed by a car. It's clearly like a drunken driver. Someone runs into her, sees that she's dead and leaves. Like a year later, we see a slow pan of maybe every game that's ever been invented ever. Clue is featured very heavily. Risk, chess, all of the, the mind games. And then some not mind games. I feel like backgammon was the, I don't he know. He likes games. He likes all of them. We see him typing up cards and then we see the people who get the cards. They're all invited to an invitation only week on his yacht to play games. And so all of these various people who don't really like this producer, but kind of want something from him all show up on this yacht. Classic. He's the rich one that they all want to mooch off of. 
and they they all need him so they all have to put up with his nonsense and they go it's cool that it's on a yacht too yeah oh they were gonna do it um like a snowstorm weekend in long island but they decided that would suck to shoot and they were like hey wouldn't it be so much nicer if we were like on the french riviera yeah that's what i thought when i saw the movie i was like oh this was clearly they wanted to have a vacation Although apparently the first yacht that they had for this whole thing sunk. Shooting got pushed back because the yacht got destroyed. It wasn't so easy to film after all. I thought it was a vacation. I spoke too soon. Well, the actors felt, some of the actors felt like it was a vacation because I guess they were still out in the French Riviera while it was getting like fixed while they were building a soundstage for the interiors. So she was like, we're getting paid to hang out on the beach and go shopping. That That's perfect. Well, good for them. So they all come to the boat. They all show up at the boat. Uh, and they are each told that they will be given a different card with a trait on it. And then everyone's going to have to play this game with clues to figure out who had that card. But the the key that one of the characters figures out is that these are all traits that each of them possess. So they might not have the card that says their own trait, but everyone there has one of the traits on the card. I want to know, when did you know what you knew? <laughs> when were you shocked? What were you shocked by? From the very first scene, somebody dies. Sheila dies. So in your mind, you you go, okay, this is the kind of movie where people can die. Uh, and then it goes into this man doing some kind of invitation scene. If this was any other kind of whodunit or clue or something like that, it'd be, come to my mansion. You all have secrets and I know the secrets. And technically, it was going to be a mansion until they wanted a boat vacation. It's a great thing that they wanted that vacation because this is the whodunit on a boat. Pretty quickly, they get to the game. You know that this producer guy, Clinton, is a sadistic maniac from the very get-go. He's immediately making fun of everyone, belittling them, saying that they're all losers. (laughs) And you go, wow, what a good friend. Me watching it, I was like, okay, Someone's going to kill Clinton because Clinton, in the grand scheme of things, he's either got to be the murderer or the victim. That's how it works in Clue. You know, Mr. Body dies. The character of Clinton is very fun and he's a playful, weird guy. He said, we're going to be playing this game. They do the first night. The one who finds it first is the screenwriter, who is a guy named Tom, a very skinny man. Oh, his IMDb page says he is the archetype of East Coast Jewish intellectual agony. He he was great. He was a great uh, kind of detective for the movie. Did you get the sense at all that they were lovers from any early interactions or no? I had assumed that Clinton had had sex with all of them. He probably did. <laughs> from, from, from the get-go, I was like, okay, this is a guy who has sex with everybody. There were definitely some plot twists. This movie very much, like you said, reminded me of Knives Out, which Knives Out, you know, is made many, many, many years later. So I should say that Knives Out reminds me of this movie. But um, the main thing that reminded me of, of Knives Out was around halfway through the movie, they have the false explanation i guess this movie it's more like three quarters of the way through the movie of they have the false explanation of who the killer is and what exactly is the mystery 
Um, and spoiler alert for Knives Out as well. If you have not seen Knives Out, um, you should see that movie too. I always enjoy it when a movie will thoroughly convince me that the mystery is solved. I feel like if I would have seen this movie first, I would have felt this way more about this movie, but I had a feeling when I was watching the movie Knives Out that when they reveal who the killer is in Knives Out, who the quote-unquote killer is well when they reveal the the girl oh oh so you're saying not the real real not the real real killer but the fake out killer when i saw knives out i you know went into the movie going oh this is a whodunit like a classic whodunit and then they show you the murder halfway through the movie and they show you the death and you go like oh i guess this isn't a whodunit i guess this is more of like a more of a Hitchcockian kind of like, you know who the killer is and you're going like, I wonder if they're going to get away with it. And in Knives Out, you wanted her to because you liked her so much and her intentions were pure. Yes, yes, absolutely. So the tension came from, I hope she gets away with it. But then you're also hoping for the mystery to be solved because you root for the detective. And then the joy of Knives Out is that the detective and her together solve the greater mystery. So that's kind of what this movie has. This movie has this false explanation in the middle of the movie where they say that Clinton was killed by Lee, the alcoholic. The writer's wife, who is an alcoholic, who was the one that did kill Sheila. Uh, She was driving drunk, hit her, ran. But it's funny because, yeah, the people that die, we do care about Lee. We're all kind of okay with her death because she was responsible for Sheila's death. Right. Just like, I think we're all okay with Clinton's death because he was such a dick. Yes, yes. (laughs) And he was older. Yeah. You know, of course you're you're bummed that Clinton dies because he's one of the most fun characters. And you go, oh, you only get through two nights of the game. On one hand, I was going like, oh, well, it would have been fun to see the whole game play out. But I was also thankful because I was like, okay, I don't have to sit through four more nights. Um, I think it was very clever of Richard Benjamin's character to figure everything out so quickly. Once you know it's him, which I did, because I had seen this movie before. There are so many signs from the beginning, not even just the ones they mention. Like in the end, James Mason does figure out that it was uh, Richard Benjamin's character, Tom is his name, that did it because of, you know, you crumpled the paper, but in the end it was smooth and this should spell Sheila, but it doesn't. The ice pick, all of those things. But there were even more just like little tiny moments that I kept noticing that I went, oh my God. Like they make so many comments to her wealth over and over again and that should have just been a giveaway to us from the beginning and him like he's the one who gives her her pills and uh, there are just so many things he said to her little tiny things that you go it was so you how did we not see this it's it's very delightful it's one of these movies that you say the great thing about this movie is that they are constantly giving you all of the clues and um there were a few things that i noticed i definitely did not put everything together no i didn't either i will say that he tom was the first person to solve um the first game and it was almost like the order of the people that figured things out was that first night It is great when you watch a mystery and it fools you into thinking that the mystery is done. That is great. When they say the mystery is over and then you go, okay, well, should the movie be over or or no? 
you go, why did the camera linger so much on the picture of all of them in front of the word Sheila? Because your brain, you know, that's supposed to mean something. I don't know what it means, but I think it's supposed to mean something. And one of the things that we do see, they give it away early on where we see the alcoholic card. They flash that to us at 14 minutes in and they tell us at like 30 minutes in that Clinton in his boat can hear everybody through his like machine. And then they never bring it up again. And so those things linger. You forget them, but you remember them too. And you go, wait, wait, yeah. hold on. Yeah. Why would you introduce that? Watching the movie, I had figured that the person that was the killer of Sheila, I thought it was going to be Lee. I thought that Lee was going to be the person who had hit uh, with the car. Because she suspiciously was not there that night. Right. She says, I was in Santa Barbara. So you, you think, where are you? We don't know. And she's also like so clearly the one that they're trying to get you to not suspect because she seems like I'm the innocent one. You also see her as this sympathetic character. Her husband is a terrible person. As you're watching the movie, I was like, okay, she has a drinking problem. There is constantly parts where he is taking her drink and she's telling him what the drink is. Like right in the first scene, their first interaction is he takes her drink and she goes like, it's a ginger ale or something like that. But she chugs it really quick, so it might not have been. So wait, I know you're going to say something, but can I tell you one thing I noticed about that scene? He was watching, I think he was watching the Maltese Falcon. I heard Peter Laurie and Sydney Greenstreet's voice and I went, are you watching the Maltese Falcon? It was either that or they did another movie together later on. I don't know, but I got excited about that because they kept throwing homages in there. There are a lot of homages, but you were saying. The movie does do a good job of tricking you. You are suspicious of him from the get-go because you're more in her from her point of view at the start of it. But then when you realize, okay, she's the alcoholic who probably killed Sheila, you then say, okay, I guess he is actually not bad. He's just looking out for her. He's like controlling what she drinks because he doesn't want her getting drunk. I did notice that he had the ice pick. And then when the ice pick was missing later, I was like, well, Tom had the ice pick. I didn't notice that when I had watched it. I think it's because I was so suspicious and weirded out by Tom in the beginning because of the way that he was treating Lee. It's only when he's solving the mystery does he win you over as a character because you start to go, oh, he's impressive. Because before that, you go, he's pathetic. His, his back doesn't even work. <laughs> oh my God. And I was wondering if they were going to make that pay off or if that was going to be something that he was faking. No, his back really did hurt, we think. Wait, unless it was to get the extra drugs. Maybe it was just to get the extra drugs from Clinton. Yes. Whatever. And then he, he was using it to try and figure out when his night was going to be. He tried to skip out on one of the nights and he said, your night is Saturday. Saturday, my boy. Clinton, uh, we we think he's like this kind of omnipresent, so smart. He's planned everything to a T, but he really didn't. When Tom plans this whole extra thing and we're going along with it, Clinton didn't mean for it to be, he really did mean for it to be a game that made fun of them. 
that was all yes. it was supposed to be. Yeah. So Clinton isn't this like extra special omnipresent force that we think he is throughout the entire film. And I find that to be fascinating. And I also find that to be such like a producer Hollywood thing yeah. where you have all these ideas about who these people are, but they're just like, they're regular people. They don't always achieve grandeur. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. what we build up. And the other thing that's funny that I was realizing when you were talking about Tom is he hasn't had a big writing project ever. He, he fucks up his writing projects, right? Or they don't come through. He's always the, the guy you go to for rewrites. And so it's so funny that he does this whole plan and he has this whole thing. And yet again, he can't come through. He ends up as the rewrite guy. I thought that was such a solid fitting. Can we talk about the ending too? How fitting that was? What I love about this ending is that it's so morally ambiguous. Like no one's going to get caught, but yes, he's going to be in hell. Like, oh God, his life from this point out, all that money he just murdered for is going to go into this movie that he's going to have to do the rewrites for. Yeah, he, he definitely got his just desserts. I think it's also kind of like a very cynical end to where you go like, everybody knows that a murder has happened. They don't care. They just are using it now to extort the money to get to get this movie made. Well, not everybody. The little child molester and the informant are the two people that really know. Right, right, right. right. If you were like, hey, what are the worst of all these traits? Like shoplifter, that's not so bad. Ex-convict, not so bad. Like little child molester screams out to me. Yeah. And the fact that we're rooting for the little child molester to win. Yeah. That's fucked up. Yes. (laughs) That's the thing is that you're watching the movie and you go that all the people are, uh, well, not all of them are so terrible. Like you say, the actress um, who is the shoplifter she's not so bad she's just you know she took a coat yes but i love that shoplifting now becomes affairs too because essentially the murder happened not just for her but she was a part of why he wanted to so oh uh, raquel welch's character alice is having an affair with tom and tom is also they, they say he's a homosexual but i feel like bisexual is a better word for it Fun fact, this movie was almost going to be rated R because Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins really wanted to put in like gay club footage. Um, They wanted it to be like Tom is exposed as like being in a gay club and it was going to be like very um, like naked man, sexy footage. So it didn't make the film. I don't even know if they ever shot it, but they had to cut it out to get a PG rating. Sucks. I know, right? We could have had some great 70s gay club footage. Yeah. I forget what we were talking about. The shoplifter wasn't so bad, but she wasn't, that's not the worst. She's one of the least bad people. Her, The man that she's with. Oh, Ian McShane. Oh. You know, you know right from the get-go, it's not him because that's who the movie wants. The movie's saying, yes. think it's him. Think it's him. And he's not bright enough to pull it off. We see that over and over again. Yeah, you go, he's a dumb idiot. Yes, he he's like the classic in one of these movies. There's always like the jerk, you know, the the guy who's terrible, who's there to like say the worst things people are thinking. I think Clinton's that too, but Clinton's more fun in that role. Whereas this other guy, you're like, you're not even funny. You're not even witty. You're just mean. He's just a mean guy. Yeah, so watching it, you you... You know, you know, it's not him. He is also a bad person, but he's one of the least bad people. And then Christine, my favorite character, she is the informant. And you go like, you forget 
you know, the Cold War was a thing. Yeah, and like the McCarthy era and House on American Activities Committee in it. That's pretty fucked up that she did that, for sure. Yes, and that was that was certainly interesting to see. That's why the ending's so great, because she knows what happened. She did this, but she's the one that is essentially going to say, I just want the movie to happen. I don't care that you're a killer. I don't care that you're a child molester. I don't care about this. I just want the movie to to happen. And I want my client to be in it. Yes. You know, in a lot of ways, she, in my mind, though, is the least evil character because she is the one who lives the most genuinely out of all of them. Like when she does that at the end of the movie, you say, of course she would do that. That's how she's acted the entire film. She's honest about herself. She's the most honest. So even though we see a lot of negative traits, she's at least upfront about them. They're they're not hidden. I was very scared when it looked like she was going to die. I said, she's my favorite character. Don't kill her. She's funny. And then they didn't kill her. And I said, good. And then they killed your second favorite character, which, which is the other guy. Although what kills me, there's so many things I want to talk about because Diane Cannon, I want to talk about a little bit too. Do you know anything about Diane Cannon at all? No. She was married to Cary Grant when she was young. Wow. And it turns out, I, I hate this because I, I struggle with this a lot. I talked about this in a podcast episode before where it's like, what do you do with men who behave badly in cinema? So like Woody Allen, I can't watch right. his movies anymore because it's, it's I'm disgusted. But like, knowing Cary Grant was like emotionally abusive to Diane Cannon and would really control her and was 33 years older than her. It's, you know, what I do love about this is that Diane Cannon went from someone who was very controlled to someone who was like free enough and outspoken enough to play a role like this, you know? So she got to grow up and become like a much truer version of herself. Not that this role is like what she is. I'm just saying, can you imagine going from someone who's like every move is controlled and you're in that kind of relationship? He used to like make her do drugs and stuff. Like he would have her do LSD because he really liked doing LSD and she didn't really want to, but it was how he like, this is the only way you can be free. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of great. She said, she was like, I don't want everyone's opinion of Cary Grant to get ruined, but like, this is what happened in her relationship. But yeah, I do like that. She eventually became like a very open, free kind yeah, of person. That's good. Um, what else about Diane Cannon do I know? Yeah. What do you, what do you know about all the, these actors? Because I recognized many people but I did not know from where at all. So I think that's what's interesting too, is we would have gone in like knowing more about these people back in the day because they would have been contemporary and that's the feeling you carry with you. So James Mason, I wanted him to be okay. I was so sad when I found out he was the little child molester because I like James Mason because he's very comforting to me because I've seen him in many classic films. What's he been in? Oh God, I just put this together and it should have been obvious. He was in Lolita. So that should have really... Uh tipped me off. Um, I can't watch the movie Lolita because I read the book and it just hurt me so much that I couldn't watch the movie. Right. I have, I've never seen the movie. So he was in Lolita. So yeah, tips you off. But he was the husband. He was Norman Maine in Judy Garland's A Star is Born, which I love. So to me, he is always Norman Maine, you know? And he's played the bad guy and stuff. And he was in North by Northwest. Um, He was actually later on in Heaven Can Wait with um, Warren Beatty when they did that remake. And Diane Cannon's in it too. And she's great in it. And she plays a totally different kind of character and it's hilarious. She's really funny. So yeah, that's what I walked in with James Mason. He's done a lot of movies though. 
Who, what about Clinton? What, what has Clinton been in? So I don't know a lot of his movies. He's, he's a famous, he's like known for his big smile. What I realize sometimes is I mix up, his name is James Coburn and I mix him up with, uh, who is married to Lauren Bacall? I mix him up with that guy all the time. There's a similar actor to him and I mix the two of them up all the time. He was in The Great Escape, James Coburn was. Um, the Magnificent Seven. So he's done a lot of these action films. Okay. Um, and you can kind of tell he's been in Snow Dogs. Oh, so that's there you go. Snow Dogs. Really important. I, I mix him up with, um, oh my God, it's going to drive me nuts that I can't remember this person's name. Lauren Bacall's husband, who was not Humphrey Bogart, the other one. Jason Robards. Jason Robards. I remembered it. I mix him up with Jason Robards. They're not the same person, but they remind me of each other. This is great, Sarah. I like that I learn so much when I talk to you. Really? Thanks, Nick. <laughs> I carry these facts inside of me and then I can share them with people. Oh, wait, we didn't talk about Raquel Welch either. Raquel Welch is in this. She's famous. She's in what, like 10,000 BC or something? Yeah, she's in like a lot of like, I'm in a bikini, like 60s and 70s films. But I guess everyone, everyone hated her on set, I guess. Wow. And um, she quit the project for a little while. And she said it was because of like, she was going to file something against the director, Herbert Ross, for assault and battery. But no one totally knows if it's true or not. So it's, it's hard to say. She said that, but some people were thinking she was trying to promote another film she was in. Um, but I don't know, because Herbert Ross doesn't seem to have a lot of complaints against him. I looked, but, may, you know, it's totally possible. It, again, just, just assume every person is bad. Everything is terrible. Well, she brought a bodyguard in to finish the rest of the shoot, but I guess like a lot of the male co-stars did not care for her. James Mason had some choice words about her. Anthony Perkins did not like her. But yeah, I, where I was going originally with all of this was that I just wanted James Mason to be okay because <laughs> I like him. And he was okay. He turned out just fine. He, he got off scot-free, you know? But I really liked Richard Benjamin's character. I didn't think he was the bad guy when I saw it. I still weirdly liked him. And I think it's because he's got like sweet little boy face. He has like a great energy to him. He has such an interesting look to him because he's like a head on top of a stick. Um, and then they gave him this mustache. He has this mustache and he has like these really tight sweaters throughout, throughout the whole movie. Um, and he just has like a really kind of soothing voice. And he had like a a very calm energy about him throughout the whole thing, which again, in the middle of the movie makes him seem very charming. And then at the end of the movie, you realize that he's a, he's a psychopath when he turns around with those puppets on his hands. Cause you're watching the movie and you go, why does this guy have puppets randomly? I wrote it in all caps. In my notes, I wrote, why does Ian McShane have puppets? It's one of the mysteries that is never explained in the film. Do you know why he had puppets? I don't know. I'm glad he had puppets. Yes, I'm glad that he had puppets. It was certainly, I think why he had puppets was probably because Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim were thinking and they said, what if he's going to strangle him and he doesn't have gloves, so he strangles him with puppets on his hands? That was definitely what they were doing. It's like how Die Hard is just all about how do we get this image that we have in our head of a man without shoes and a tank top like running through grates. How do we get there? Let's answer all the, like, let's work backwards. Start there and then figure it out. Yes, but the problem is they don't explain the puppets. At least in Die Hard, they explain why he's not wearing shoes. 
I, I wonder if maybe there's like some kind of a deleted part or something to explain why he is, why he has two puppets. I, I don't know. Maybe it's an ex-convict thing, like a therapy. Sure, yeah, there is therapy puppets. Who knows? I have a theory that old movies are better than new mo- new movies. Besides, wait, we should say, besides the obvious, like there are no people of color in this film. There's no diversity. And the women's parts uh, Dan Cannon. Oh, this is what I was going to say about her. She almost didn't want to do this movie because she didn't love the way the women's parts were written. She felt like they were written kind of, um, not with malice, but they weren't like fully fleshed out women, not real to what women are, but I still enjoyed them. And I thought she brought so much to this role. I thought she was, you, we both loved her the most. She was the greatest. Of all of them. Yeah, she, she was great. Um, there were certainly like a lot of connections between these characters and you go like, I know that they're all kind of friends, but where do they all live? Because I was like, how is Tom having an affair with Alice if she lives elsewhere in the world? I guess I don't know. I think at one point they said he flew out to Rome or something to see her, but they all, they have to be all LA based. So maybe it's just been a longer running affair than we know about. I guess so. Yeah. She definitely had this aspect of, of um, hating her husband. Was Puppet Man her husband? Yes, Puppet Man was her. We don't understand why they are together, I think. Yes. Well, looking at it, I was like, I guess he's he's like her manager. Yes, and he does protect her. He like pushes that reporter out of the way and hurts him. So I go like, I guess he's kind of bodyguardish a, a little bit to where he um, manhandles people that are trying to approach her. But it kind of more feels like in a way of this is mine. This is mine. And get out, get away from here. Um, Sondheim really based this character on Raquel Welch and her husband. That's so sad. And then she had her whole thing of her affair. That, I guess, was an act of defiance against Puppet Man. When she's speaking to Tom, who is, again, off camera through through most of it, so you don't know that it is Tom until after the murder has been revealed. I can see what Christine was saying in that the, the female characters in the movie are written kind of a, a more shallow way to where that character in particular, when Tom doesn't have a wife anymore, she goes, well, we just were having fun because we were both married. And now that you're single, I don't like it anymore. Well, I do think that was a reflection of shoplifting, though. I think the thrill of an affair is shoplifting for her. And I'm wondering, maybe, this probably isn't true, but do you think maybe she doesn't have as good of, I don't know, as good of a part because they didn't like her as much? Like, I'm sure it was all written before, obviously, but I, I wonder if maybe certain parts of hers were cut, certain things were cut. I don't know. who Who's to say what why something turned out the way that it did? Also, I don't want to talk shit about Stephen Sondheim because I love him. I love him so much. and also. Do you think, did you notice that the homosexual is the one that did it? And Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins are both gay. They were not really like, quote unquote, allowed to be out. So like the one that actually commits the crime is the one that's labeled homosexual. Like, what do you think of that? It was certainly interesting. You know, us us looking back on it, we look back at a movie it's from the 70s, right? From 1973. And, you know, we obviously cringe at, at certain parts. So like in the part when they go like, do you really think there's a homosexual aboard the ship? One of them looks horrified, like, not a homosexual. No, you're in Hollywood. Come on. You've never met a homosexual before. Really? You're in the industry and not once. 
but you go like you know anthony perkins and steven sondheim wrote it so they they can do whatever they want the main thing that seems sad here is that he's saying to his wife that i've been unfaithful to you in some way i saw it as like i'm sorry that i committed this gay act like that's how I read it as that she she's been more upset that he was gay than that he cheated on her. Yeah, so you don't so I don't think they specify if him and Clinton were a thing during the marriage or prior to the marriage. Yeah, so I look at it and my brain goes like, well, this is not a big deal, but I also recognize that it is written to be a big deal because of the time that that it was written in. This movie's ahead of its time, man. It gets ahead of its time in the genre and it's ahead of its time with like certain shots. Like they have the Jaws shot before Jaws is a thing. That was cool. Of looking up at her on the float before. Do you think that maybe like Steven Spielberg saw this and got that idea? everybody saw this movie and stole it. And then they never referenced it ever until this year when all of a sudden people are like, oh, The Last of Sheila's a movie. And I'm like, I know it's a movie. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know? Everybody sees every, each other's movies, right? But this was a huge flop. It was a flop? It was a flop. Nobody saw this movie. Oh, and you asked earlier, Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim both never wrote another screenplay. This was both of their only screenplays. I mean, Stephen Sondheim, like, wrote, he wrote a script for something, and he tried to make a, a murder mystery play, and it only ran for, like, 18 performances and didn't work, and I don't remember the name of it. But yeah, so neither of them wrote another screenplay. This was, this kind of flopped, and it was difficult to make. There were a lot of issues with production. Like we talked about the yacht sunk. Apparently there was a terrorist group that was threatening them because there were Jewish actors on set. And then the Raquel Welch thing, they had to shut down for a little bit because she walked off the set, which she might've totally deservedly done. We don't know. And she is beautiful. I can see a disgusting man like being disgusting with her. Absolutely. I don't trust that guy at all. Although he did direct a lot of really good things. I looked him up after because I was like, that name's familiar. How would I know that person? Um, These are the things that this man has directed. There are a lot of movies that I really love. Okay. Let's hear. Okay. So this is Herbert Ross. So before he did this, all he had done was like, Goodbye, Mr. Chips the Musical, which I didn't even know was a thing and which makes me horrified. (laughs) Okay. So he'd done that. Okay, here are some of his other movies. Play It Again, Sam, the Woody Allen movie. That was before this. He did Funny Lady. Funny Lady, okay. This is where it starts to get better. Okay, he did Footloose. He did Footloose? He directed Footloose. He directed Steel Magnolias. He directed The Turning Point, which obviously I love. He directed The Goodbye Girl. He he directed two Neil Simon things. He did like The Sunshine Boys too. He directed Boys on the Side, which is fine. Did you ever see Boys on the Side from the 90s with Drew Barrymore? No, I never saw that. Um, and he, oh, The Secret of My Success, that Michael J. Fox one. Did you ever watch that one? No. I totally used to watch it. It was on Comedy Central like all the time when we were in high school. He Maybe he's good at directing and a terrible person. We don't know. I wrote down Diane Cannon. What if he was taking a shit, Diane Cannon? There's a scene where she just walks into Clinton's bedroom and then into his bathroom without knocking to have sex with him and i was like what if he was pooping what if he was going poop diane cannon you need to knock maybe they're fine with that i also took a note about clinton was on a boat and he threw the clues to richard benjamin on the ship and i was like what these are all artists you're assuming they can catch what is wrong with you you can't assume that you must gently hand these things you can't assume a writer can catch am i correct 
and me being a writer, I know firsthand that I cannot catch anything. Um, also, he said, here are your clues for the evening. But I thought he said, here are your clothes for the evening. And he threw this tiny little package up. And I was like, what are they wearing? And then I realized after the fact, he said clues. There were so many great one-liners. At first, I started to try to write them down, and then I gave up. Because there's so many good, not just one-liners, but like really good sleuth puns. There's so many. Oh, like even uh, Lee saying, I would kill myself for a hot bath. And then she dies later in the hot bath. That's really sad. It's really sad, but there are so many things like that. I love that the whole mystery is the title of the movie, The Last of Sheila, not, doesn't just mean like the death of Sheila, but the last letter. The last letter of Sheila. How great is that? Even the title's a pun. It's one of these movies where you go like, the rewatch value is great because you start to pick up on these little clues. It's the difference between like a good mystery and a not good mystery is if you know the solution, the movie then becomes more interesting to rewatch instead of less interesting to rewatch. I have seen this movie three times and I have enjoyed it each time and I have found so many different things in each viewing. It's very clever. You can tell that they had a fun time while they were writing the movie, at least. Maybe they didn't have fun making the movie, but... Oh, and when they were writing it, Anthony Perkins was shooting Play It As It Lays, which I kind of love. That's just a cool, like, feminist, badass tie-in. That's cool. I've never seen the movie, but I read the book. It's Joan Didion. Okay. You should watch it. It's got Anthony Perkins in it. You're right. Have you seen Psycho? Many times. <laughs> but it's scary, Sarah. I know, but that's a, it's a different kind of scary. Although the first time I saw Psycho, I was 11 years old and it was in a fucking hotel. That was the first time I saw a Psycho. And when I took a shower, I made my brother stand outside of the bathroom door to like make sure that no one could come in and murder me. Good, good. And no, no one, one did. I'm did. still alive. You, here you are. No one in the hotel murdered me. That's great. I'm here. Your brother scared him off. Yeah. I also had him do that after I saw Sweeney Todd. Oh, really? <laughs> Which you were the first person that like explained the plot of Sweeney Todd and it gave me many nightmares. Wow. And then, yeah, when I saw Sweeney Todd, my brother had to stand outside the door and, oh, get this one. This one's super embarrassing. Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> my brother had to stand outside the door. <laughs> Yeah, he's a real brother. Wow, you you're scared of Phantom of the Opera? Yeah, because he fucking murders people. He hangs them by their necks with no remorse, and we're supposed to be like, oh, that tortured artist, we love him so much. I'm like, he fucking killed people. Isn't that scary? He's singing. He's murdering, and he's behind her mirror. Try getting ready for bed and knowing a murdering person who will try to hypnotize you and enter your mind. But he's going like, I am not you. It's like, this is not that scary. Well, now it's not. Are you talking about the musical? Yeah, I'm talking about not just the, the musical. Andrew Lloyd this Webber musical. When I saw the Andrew Lloyd Webber film in 2004, and I was a Wait, teenager. the film? When I saw the film, I was scared. And I had my brother stand outside the door. I don't know if you, if this is something, but as I was watching the credits, I saw something that Joel Schumacher did the costumes for this movie. And Joel Schumacher is the director of the Phantom of the Opera movie. Do you think it's the same? Look it up. It's the same. It's Joel Schumacher. Guy. So what we're saying is I just, my fear of Phantom of the Opera, thank goodness I shared that. tied right back into this film. 
yeah, Joel Schumacher, because I think didn't didn't Joel Schumacher start out as a costume designer? It looks like it. He did the costumes for Play It As It Lays, The Last of Sheila, Sleeper, that Woody Allen film, where they're the, like in the future. Interiors. I haven't seen Interiors. It looks like another Woody Allen film, which so I can't watch it now. Yeah, who 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 needs it? But, you know, for those of you that are watching or listening and might not know, Joel Schumacher, who recently passed away, R.I.P. Oh, yes. Rest in peace, Joel Schumacher. Director of the Phantom of the Opera film, but also some really good Batman films, some really good films and some not so good films. But yeah, Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. I liked Batman Forever. Batman and Robin, I don't know. It was going for something, you know? We had acrobats and I think that's all you need in a film. <laughs> Back to the last of Sheila. Um, yeah, so it, that that is fun seeing Joel Schumacher, knowing that Joel Schumacher is the one that picked out all those tight sweaters uh, is great. Well, and Joel Schumacher was gay. So we have like a solid gay representation. So actually this is being recorded in June. It's Pride Month. I did, I planned this like set list before all this, so I wasn't thinking, but it worked out great. Happy Pride Month. Here's the thing about the homosexual card. I thought that there was going to be some kind of switcheroo because I thought that Lee was who, um, Alice was having an affair with. Oh, I thought it was going to be James Mason when I first saw it. And I thought he was going to be homosexual and that that they weren't really having an affair. The first time I saw this, I was just along for the ride. I wasn't watching it like how I would watch it, you know, when you're trying to notice things. I was kind of just, I want to watch a whodunit tonight. This is on a list of good whodunits. I'm going to watch it. That was why I picked it. This was on an obscure list that I found. So I thought that Alice and Lee were, were going to be the thing. Uh, I don't know why I thought that, you know, as Tom was trying to solve the mystery, either she is the killer, Lee, Lee is the hit and run driver, or Lee is trying to cover for someone else that is the hit and run driver. I knew that the movie couldn't be over because I was going like, there is 40 minutes left in this film. <laughs> so I was like, okay, there, this can't be done yet. Um, what are they trying to trick us with here? The Tom reveal at the end of saying Tom killed her so that he could be with Alice and that he could get her money and all of that. I thought that was good. A lot of what a mystery will do to fake you out what like these good mysteries like this or like knives out or something like that to fake you out they will usually take a character that's very likable and say this character is going to be the killer because you're not going to think of that because you don't want them to be the killer emotionally you don't want tom to be the killer you go like no he's good the fun thing of a mystery is seeing the detective solve the mystery. And when you're watching that, you're going like, I like him. Don't make the detective the killer. And then they go, no, he is. And then you go, okay, he is. And now I have to be impressed by this director guy that you go, I don't like him. He's a bad person. What you were just describing, and it doesn't matter that, that I know each time who it's going to be. I will still watch my Hallmark movies and Mysteries movies, and I will still watch Murder, She Wrote. I can't help it. Literally, every week on Murder, She Wrote, it's usually the person you go, I kind of like that person. And then that's, that's either the person that dies or that did it. And it's over and over again. And I still come back every week for more. 
I can't help it. When you go in to watch a mystery, yeah, just look for the most likable character and say, oh, well, that's probably the killer. Unless they're a series regular in the mystery. Because Jessica Fletcher will never have been the murderer. Although, was she the murderer the whole time? Maybe. That would have been a twist. That's the John Oliver theory that she, it's Jessica Fletcher's serial killer and it's her covering her tracks the whole time. That's that's fun. Yeah. That's a good theory. Also, that show happened because of this movie, and I'm going to tell you why. You know how the mystery craze happened in the 70s? So Murder on the Orient Express, huge hit. All these Agatha Christie movies get made. She's in like the third one that gets made, which is The Mirror Cracked, which came out in the 80s, which I've been meaning to watch since forever because Elizabeth Taylor is in it, and she's very dramatic, and I just want to watch it, but I haven't. I've been like saving it for a rainy day, and we live in Los Angeles, so is there a rainy day? I don't know. Uh, because she played Miss Marple in that, it was like that got the idea of Murder, She Wrote. Murder, She Wrote came about many moons later. That was like what got her considered for that. That was why she was offered that part. That's so cool. I love that trope of the, the writer that becomes the detective. And that happens in this. The writer becomes the detective, but, but he's the killer. He's also the killer. And then you have, you know, the director at the end doing the only dialogue that I really thought was kind of cheesy was the dialogue where the director is saying, no, 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 now the director gets to say his thing. And this is the director's cut. It, it's like I, Anthony Perkins, Stephen Sondheim, you guys are obviously geniuses. I am unworthy. But if I could just say to cut one line from the movie, cut, this is the director's cut. I almost wish Stephen Sondheim had popped in and been like, the director's cut. Yeah. I would have accepted it in that fashion. Yeah, that, that would be okay. As I was watching the movie, I was kind of imagining it. I was going like, okay. So when they were writing this or when they were reading this, to amongst themselves or to their friends i was like anthony perkins would definitely reading tom and steven sondheim was reading the director i love that image so much wait they named people who like a lot of these things were really based on but i didn't remember who the director was i don't remember the director's name well, i meant like because a lot of them they said who it was based on so like the agent was based on sue mingle and um tom and lee were based on real people too Imagine doing that. Imagine if I wrote something and I came to you, Sarah, and I said, I, I wrote this about you. I based it on you. And then you were a murderer. And I was like a terrible person. You're a murderer. I, Nick, I would really dislike that. If you ever write, well, if you ever write a character based on me, just make her the single greatest human that is maybe ever lived. Okay. Well, that's how I see you, Sarah. Oh, we know what the movie based on you is all about. It's all about Sarah having adventures, looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> Is it under this phone? No. <laughs> but yes, I think that it's very sadistic and very fitting of both Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim to write something based on their friends where they made them all murderers and, uh, and terrible people. And only they could get away with it, I think. And they said, surprise, <laughs> do you like it? Um, I looked down and saw the words Lacoste. I really liked that Lacoste was heavily featured on Ian McShane's character. Every scene he had a Lacoste shirt. And then the one scene he had a Lacoste sweater that was like unbuttoned down to his navel. It was very 70s. And I thought, if you're going to unbutton your shirt that much, you must be hot. So don't wear a sweater. Yeah, you know, but it was the 70s, you know. Oh, and Raquel Welch wouldn't put sunscreen on Lee's back. And so now I'm like, oh, with your 
your theory, if they had been gay, that would have been like a very interesting moment. But now I know it's because Raquel Welch's character was having an affair with her husband. Yeah, I do remember that scene. I didn't pick up on that. I wasn't looking at it because I knew. So I was like, ooh, look at these moments. Well, I, you should have told me to watch the movie twice before we talked. Also, Diane Cannon was wearing a belly necklace. What are those called? Belly bracelets? Yeah, on her bikini, she had like a necklace on her stomach. And I, I just went, oh, thank you. Thank you, 70s gods, for giving. Joel Schumacher would have placed that there. There you go, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for that. Um, I liked her reaction, Christine's reaction after almost dying when um, she's pulled up out of the water. She almost got chopped apart by a propeller. She's been thrown around in a whirlpool and she comes up and she's just babbling like a like a fool <laughs> and laugh. she's laughing she's hyperventilating and i watched that and i was like this is a perfect reaction it felt very much like anthony perkins and steven sondheim knew exactly how these type of people would react in this situation Except for when the people start dying. They get like really callous. It works so well though. It does work well. Because they're New Yorkers, right? They have disdain for this like LA Hollywood way of being. Yes, it, it reminded me of that movie, This Is The End, the one, the Seth Rogen, all of that, that's about the rapture happens yes. and then who's left is all of the people in Hollywood. This is a funny idea to see a murder mystery whodunit following a bunch of Hollywood LA slime balls. Diane Cannon, as we can all agree, was perfect in this movie. Yes. But one of my favorite moments in the whole film was when Clinton's giving that big speech and he's like being pulled down and he's this grand speech yeah yeah she says i'm you know i'm eating solid food it's hard for me to keep it down but i'm eating solid food again just updating him and he does not care he says something so sassy to her and i don't remember what it is but i was like that's a perfect moment right there He's talking about looking at islands and how these islands have a few people that live on them that if you buy the island, they treat you like a king. And then she interrupts him and he'll say, I hate getting my island speech interrupted or something like that. It was great. (laughs) It was great. And then he says, you don't deserve a king like me. And then he's murdered. And then he gets murdered. That whole thing happened and he was dead and they were still doing the voices underneath. When Richard Benjamin did his impression, I wrote it down and I was like, they again, they tell us so much that it's him right did you know that he was really dead could you tell from those moments yes i i could tell that he was already dead because you don't see his mouth moving and like he has a weird dead look on his face that far away look as she says yeah and you look at it and you go he's dead isn't he He's already dead. But when Tom did his impression of Clinton, I didn't get that he was supposed to be doing an impression of Clinton because I felt like I did not hear him speak enough or earlier in the movie to remember what his voice sounded like. And I saw that part and I was like, wow, this actor has a better voice than what I remembered. And then I realized later that they had like dubbed him over with the other actor's voice. And that yeah. that actor has such an amazing voice. The Clinton actor. James Coburn. Again, I mix him up with the other actor, so I forget. Coburn. Coburn. Not the other one. I love just glancing at my notes because every now and then I'll write something in caps. And this 
time all it has to do with is puppets the other one was like why does he have the puppets and then i turned the page and i wrote murder by puppets murder by puppets i loved that climax of he's gonna murder him with the puppets and then she comes upstairs and i'm like wow this guy just lucked out it was such an interesting intense scene in the end when the director knows tom is the killer We have already seen Tom walking around the room and locking all the doors. Mason buzz for people and no one comes. Yeah, and nobody comes because everybody's supposed to be gone. And then what a delight when Christine shows up and you go, of course, she's still there. Of course. But she heard the whole thing. And she doesn't even totally have to allude to it. She's so casual about it. Isn't it great? And the cigarette bothered me too, by the way. When they find the cigarette from the very first time I saw it, I don't smoke, but I can tell you that's a weird shape for a cigarette, right? Yeah. And we didn't talk about either how James Mason, what's his, the little child molester, what's his name in this, the director? Is his name Philip? Philip, it is, yes, that Tom threw the darts at Philip and Lee, yeah. And that's cool that he throws it at Philip and Lee, the two people that he's going to kill. But he throws two darts at Philip and one gets thrown down like lower and it doesn't quite hit. And so you're like, ooh, maybe you should have tried to throw that second dart. You also go like, man, Tom is good at darts. He should have just shown off his dart skills the whole time. He should have a a new career. He should give up screenwriting and go into competitive darts no yeah no more rewriting you're going on the dart scene yeah um james mason was the one that almost murdered her because he's the one that did the rudders yes he's the one that tried to kill clinton with which is also really fucked up again the person that we're rooting for to not get killed molest children they're a party that wish he had been murdered like if he had been murdered and diane cannon had heard it would that have been or could he not be murdered because he's a director and they need a director I think that it's it's odd because you go, in story world, there is justification for murder. I think that in real life, I don't really think that there's much anyone can do for justifying putting them to death. So you, you just go like, in real life, I'm not a supporter of the death penalty. <laughs> in story world, you deserve to die if you're mean to a dog, you know, in, in story world. So you go like, in story world, he definitely did deserve to die in story world. Um, and that's what's interesting about that last part is that you see him as a person who is a bad person. Arguably the worst. His trait is the worst of everyone's, I would say. I think so, yes. Which is why he is the one that is driven to murder. He's trying to kill to keep his secret. You're right. Uh, Like, it makes you feel sick. Again, I can't believe I didn't put the Lolita reference here sooner. That's brilliant casting. Yeah. If this is the Lolita guy, of course he's going to be playing the little child molester. Like, yeah. And it had to be little child molester for people at home because that spelled Sheila. They needed an L. They needed an in the L. Tra- they, all the traits spell Sheila. Yeah, they didn't need to put the word little there. He needed it for the for the game. Yeah, so that's what's great about the ending is why it's so cynical is that these Hollywood types do not care about the murder. They don't care about the molestation. They don't care about this. They don't care about they don't care that. about any of their secrets. And they go like, I just want to make the movie. And it's certainly sad. It's a sad, cynical end. You look at it and you go like, nowadays, I don't know how the ending would fly because 
we've seen time and time again how the entertainment industry does hold secrets and protect these terrible people in charge um, because they have power and because they have the ability to make these projects happen. And they, they abuse their power constantly and they stay in power because it supports the system. I believe that this ending is the best possible ending for the story. Well, I feel like it's comedic and wry. That's why it works. Like, yeah. did you ever see the movie Young Adult? Is the Diablo Coded movie with uh, Charlize Theron. Okay. It's a great movie, but it has a very surprising ending that's like real, but it works. It could not work any other way. It could not be any other movie. And I feel that way about this. Yeah. It's kind of the ending where you think the characters learned a lesson. And then at the last minute, she's convinced that she doesn't need to learn a lesson at all. And she was perfect the way she was. Right. <laughs> but she was a terrible person before. And so she continues to be a terrible person. But that that's kind of how this is where I think because of the tone the whole time because they were so callous throughout we're allowed to be okay with it because it's i wouldn't say necessarily comedic but because it fits the tone of the rest of the piece comedic in the darkest possible sense it's like wry sarcastic yeah the cynicism of of that ending but again you go like it fits in with the whole um the whole aesthetic of everything about you know how terrible all of these hollywood people are it's a little bit of you know kind of like the satire farcical kind of adventure i love the ending shot of his face the dead like not really dead he's not dead just that vacant look in his eyes and then they're playing bet midler's you gotta have friends and what a great way to end I yeah I love that end you've got a gay icon singer you've got this upbeat song about friendship oh it's perfect it's just such a great ending and the fact that he committed a murder to get this money and this money is going to go into this movie that he's and that he's only gonna get to do the rewrites so we're gonna get a fresh writer in here yeah he's not part of our incestuous group yeah it's definitely uh, a movie that makes you look at this group and say these people should not be allowed to make movies (laughs) He shouldn't. (laughs) You know, we're all going through like a time of self-reflection right now. And everything's shut down because of the pandemic. Uh, We're all looking at like the country's history with racism. We're all looking at the police brutality. We're all looking at our own internalized racism Uh, looking at these systems and kind of self-reflecting and trying to be realistic and honest with ourselves and trying to be better and all this stuff. And this is a movie that makes you go like, oh, well, I guess I'm not that bad of a person. (laughs) These people are all terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One of the moments I loved was when Diane Cannon is explaining how she was an informant. Mm -hmm. And I loved that scene where she said, I named some names. They didn't work for a few years. Sometimes I see them on the street and they cross the street. Sometimes I try to get work for them. I loved that moment. It was like a genuine, beautiful moment in this not genuine, it's a genuine film, but in this very sarcastic film. Yeah. Yeah. Christine is my, is my favorite character. I usually gravitate towards the trope of the loudmouth character. You know, they even tell her at one point to keep her fat trap shut, (laughs) especially in like a mystery movie or like a horror movie because horror and mystery kind of, they really merge sometimes, especially like slasher movies. There will usually be like a 
a jerk that can just be the jerk that everybody hates that they're trying to say is the killer that you know for fact it's not and then there will usually be like a loudmouth character that's the one that is the quickest to like fall apart emotionally and the one who lives the most honestly and and i love those kind of characters it reminded me very much of um there's this movie called black christmas have you ever seen it mm-hmm is um, it a scary movie? It's a scary movie. That's why I haven't seen it. But you're watching scary movies. Well, I'm watching like Get Out. I'm watching like thrillers that have scary elements, but aren't, I don't know. When it's like slashery, that's more scary to me than, or like when there's like a, I don't know, like a Freddy Krueger is very scary to me right. as opposed to in Get Out when you can, it's like more based in reality. I can't explain it. Right. I, I don't know. Uh, I could watch Get Out and I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't watch the, yeah, right. I'm in a mask and I'm going to stab you. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, Black Christmas is, um, it predates Halloween, um, which a lot of people uh, attribute as like the birth of the slasher genre. But Black Christmas is a movie where there's a sorority house and there's a killer that goes into the sorority house and of and again it sounds so trashy and sleazy but it sounds like scream 2 which i have also seen because i can handle that yeah yeah it's yeah kind of the scream movies actually are similar to black christmas in a way in that black christmas was one of the early movies to have the killer talk to you on the phone Oh, when was Black Christmas? Just for my own brain reference. It was in the 70s, I think. Okay. I don't know exactly when, but it's a great movie. And Margot Kidder is in the movie. And she is the the loudmouth in that movie to where she's like the one who is saying what everybody's thinking. She's the funny character who's like getting drunk and she'll like mouth off to the killer on the phone and all this stuff. She's great. And Christine reminded me of of that kind of character. Because that's... That's who we want to be in real life, but who we never really are. And I think that's why we all love that character. Because I don't think anyone in real life ever really says what they think or what they feel. I mean, we try to. We try to be as authentic as possible. But it's just to be that free with yourself and be that quick and smart and witty and always have the right thing to say. Like, yes, I would love to be like that. That sounds great. Yeah. But that's why we gravitate toward those people because they're what we all wish we could be. They're great characters. It's usually they're never the main characters because they... They're imperfect. (laughs) They're imperfect. And also usually a good main character is like hiding something, especially in a a mystery. Mm -hmm. And And it will be somebody who might seem more innocent to begin with, but then they're hiding a deeper, darker secret. And so they can't be the loud mouth to where they can't say everything that they're thinking because they're hiding something as well. And she just did it perfectly. It's interesting that she's the person who's the informant, the person who tells on other people. And then she's the one that says, I'm going to keep the secret at the end. (gasps) I didn't think about it that way. You know, maybe this whole idea of um, telling secrets also weighed on her emotionally. Whoa. She has this whole element of, I told on people, they didn't work anymore. And now she's at the end, given the opportunity to say, 
these are two people who've done truly terrible things. I could tell on them and send them to jail. And then she doesn't, she chooses not to in the end. Yeah. So it's, it's, oh, thank you for pointing that out. What a great button. It's interesting, but it's also like her informing in earlier in the movie was portrayed as a bad trait. And now at the end you go, but I think you learned the wrong lesson, Christine. <laughs> Um, oh, before we wrap up, I do want to say they made a Paul a Paul Newman reference. And for me, if yeah. you make a Paul Newman reference, I'm going to love you for the rest of the time. Yul Brenner could play Clinton, which I thought was great. Yeah, yeah, that was and great. Then, uh, Paul and Joanne as Tom and Lee. And I, I hope that's enough content for them. <laughs> I love that <laughs> so, so much. Like all throughout the movie, they're saying like real famous people names. The Alice character is talking about, I just finished the new Kurt Douglas movie. Doesn't she say that? Douglas, yeah. 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 Um, so it's just really fun. I feel this a lot when I watch like old, like Looney Tunes cartoons. Uh -huh. They will show like celebrities at the time that you'll see things where you go, this is a joke that made sense back then. But nowadays, if you are not familiar with that, you have no idea what they're talking about. There's a Lauren Bacall one where she's a character and like, I forget who it is, if it's Bugs Bunny or whatever, they're losing their mind because yeah. they find her so attractive. And I think that's so funny that we probably watched that and had no idea that it was Lauren Bacall. Yes, I all of my first interactions with all of these famous people from bygone eras are all from the Looney Tune versions. <laughs> I go like, wait, you're that person from the Looney Tunes, right? <laughs> As a writer, you you go like pop culture references are, are something that you're always tempted to put in. And I've put in so many into, into writing because they're like, they get a laugh. It's like a cheap laugh. I know what that is. Yeah, you, yeah. There's like that moment of recognition. Of, but then you realize how dated all those jokes are. You really date yourself when you do that because in a hundred years, no one's going to know what you're talking about. I don't know though, because we still like, I would say a lot of Disney stuff is still part of our lexicon. I don't know, but even then you're right. It's who knows what will stay, what will keep and what will rot. It's why usually with pop culture references, you go, I guess you're safe because you're usually referencing something that's more famous than the thing that you're doing. But it's just interesting how you go back and you watch these movies. They'll talk about people and they'll talk about things that would have made perfect sense. Like the Paul Newman reference back when it came out, everyone would have went, ha, 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 ha. But me watching it, I go like, I wonder what Paul they're talking about. Because really? I didn't know. I didn't get it. You didn't it. know? No. I just sat there going like, oh, Paul Newman, love of my life. It was not my love of my life. Oh, the double feature. So that's where I tell you what to watch this with. Um, okay. My recommendations would actually be, because you were saying this earlier, we were talking about Knives Out. I normally only pair things with classic films. But my double feature for this would be, well, it would be Murder on the Orient Express mm -hmm. from 1974, directed by Sidney Lumet. Because not only is it another great murder mystery whodunit that started the whole craze of the whodunits throughout the 70s and 80s, but Anthony Perkins is in it and he wrote this. So it's a link. So I would say watch that next. But Knives Out, I would say, is like the perfect companion movie to this. Yeah. I think they, they should always be a double feature. And I think the resurgence of this movie, so The Last of Sheila 
I was telling you, I found it on a totally obscure list. Mm -hmm. It was one of those like, have you seen everything? Because I'm one of those people where I've seen a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, if you've seen everything and you want to find some other things to watch, here's a list of that. And I wrote down some of them and I think you would actually like, we'll watch some of them together, but not on the show, but just as people. But I've noticed this past year, The Last of Sheila has been being shown at the Nubev. It has been shown at the Egyptian. It's like having this resurgence. And I honestly think it's because of Knives Out. Yeah. I think that people have been looking for movies like this. They saw Knives Out. They said, what's another great like contemporary whodunit? And they're finding The Last of Sheila. That's, I think that's great. That's fantastic. I love that. Yeah. And it's such a gem. I think it's a real gem of a film because it's not this big blockbuster. It's just a, yeah. a delight that you have found. Yes, this was a gem. It's like, I love these movies that have a cast of colorful characters, witty, fun dialogue, a movie that you're never bored once. You never get bored once in this in this film. Although the first time I watched it, I do specifically remember feeling what you were feeling when you were worried there were going to be all those nights. And when they were on the second night, I remember being like, oh my God, I'm concerned. So viewers of any sort at home, don't get worried, okay? <laughs> You've already watched the movie, though, at this point, unless you're my mother, and then you're just listening to this and not watching the movie. I would say probably any person making movies ever agrees with this, that sometimes having a lot of money can make you lazier because you don't have to as much think of creative solutions. It's like when they made Jaws, um, <clears throat> you know, they said... The best thing for Jaws was that the shark never worked. And so because of that, they couldn't show the monster. It was kind of like, you're more afraid of what you don't see. And it's more effective when the monster comes out at you. So you go like, sometimes less is more. Like for me, I make these plays and sometimes I go like, a more expensive thing does not make it better. Sometimes it makes it worse because you don't think of how to solve a problem. You just go all throw money at it. The $5 million budget, did that kill you how that was a big budget? Was that just like so silly to you? Yeah, when they said $5 million and you go like, you know, back then that was a big budget for a movie. That was a big budget. That cracked yeah, me up. Um, yeah, I like movies specifically from the 80s. I love like 80s and 90s movies. And I like like more B-movie B things, like stuff that didn't turn out so well. Well, because it's also funny too. It has an extra layer of like, you see what they're trying to do. A lot of times it does have heart. And then it's unintentionally comedic, yes. like in an ironic yeah. way. That makes you laugh. And, and I find it inspiring. You go, that's probably more something I... I could do. <laughs> That's closer to what I could do. And you just made me realize certain people like um, Anna Mae Wong, who was this awesome actress, uh, like the first like really big Asian actress. And she was definitely treated like shit by everybody. And she couldn't find parts uh, when she got older. So she ended up working in a lot of B movies and apparently she's excellent in them. I was listening to it on Mobituaries. <laughs> they were doing her, her, it was really good. You should listen to that podcast. They played her performances from those. And I thought, wow, that, that doesn't sound like a B movie to me. I would watch that. A lot of these movies will get like great old character actors to come in and be in these films. You'll see a lot of like the point about the budgets is that this movie ends with two men in a, in a room and just one has locked the other one in and he's trying to strangle him with puppets. And you go like, but it's a, but it's a, climax that feels 
remarkably tense and it is very effective and it's frightening. Genuinely, you go, because oh, it's, it's scary. It's yes, haunting. there's something that's genuinely odd about it. To me, those are like the magic golden moments in a film. So I, I loved that this movie was like just full of odd things, things you don't see all the time. And um, again, ends with a fight with two men (laughs) they're not like they're not good fighters here's the skinniest man you've ever seen in your life trying to strangle an old man with two puppets on his hands (laughs) but do you know what you just made me realize by saying all that that he's trying to kill the child molester with a child's toy that's that's very fitting don't you think it is I find it fascinating when someone can get anything for a movie. Like there was one time Liam was was talking to <laughs> Matt and I about a movie that he was going to make, like a a student film, and it was about like uh like cop chases and like some robbers that were trying to get away from these cops and there was like a car chase in it and um the people had like a briefcase full of money and they were running away from cops and there was supposed to be a cop car and and, um and liam was like so i want to make this and matt went okay um where are you gonna get a briefcase full of money (laughs) just like the basic thing of how do you do that as soon as you think about how hard it is to get anything you you start looking at everything ever made and you say it's a miracle that this that this happened and then it makes sense (laughs) this is an absolute utter miracle so this movie is i think beyond a miracle it's very complicated and still makes sense and it tricks you which is hard for a movie to do it emotionally invests you in these characters that are all terrible people so that's again a difficult thing to do and i think it does it with humor and style the people making this movie intimately knowing what they were going for with these characters and the kind of vibe and I and I thought it was great. And doesn't it make you wish they had made more movies together? I really wish now that Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins had like done another screenplay. Nick, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Do you have anything else you want to add before we leave? Nope. Thank you for having me. It was a delight to have you. Thanks for coming on and talking about this movie. Thank you. Um, thanks for listening to Talk Classic to me. Mm-hmm.